Welcome to the Hotsy Totsy podcast. Hotsy Totsy is a membership club for women from all walks of life who like the finer things in life to come together and enjoy bespoke events in the magical nooks and crannies of London town, all with an Art Deco nod. This podcast will introduce you to some amazing and like-minded characters who love the golden 20s and 30s era and Art Deco movement as much as we do, as well as profile our wonderful Hotsy Totsy members. Welcome to the latest episode of the Hotsy Totsy podcast. I am really excited to be joined by the wonderful author Judith Mackerel, who has penned many books and biographies, including Flappers, Six Women of a Dangerous Generation, which is a hugely insightful look behind the headlines of the women of the era and a firm Hotsy Totsy favourite. Alongside this, we catch up with Hotsy Totsia Kirsten Miller, the founder of Core Green, which provides business support for small and medium-sized businesses. Alongside her business, we also chat about her touring cats and her love for a camper van. So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by this incredible woman, Judith Mackerel, who is a author. She's the former dance critic of The Guardian and writes amazing biographies. And one of my favorite, favorite books that I've read for years ago, I mean, I can't remember exactly when it was out, is about flappers. And Judith did this incredible book about the six women from that, I think it was called A Dangerous Generation, wasn't it? Where you profiled these wonderful women, including, you know, Nancy Kinnard, Tallulah Bankhead, Zelda Fitzgerald, of course, Josephine Baker, and just about this iconic time in history and how women were finding their voice and their look and their feel, and they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. And it was just amazing and that has been such a big inspiration behind Hotsy Totsy and celebrating this emergence of these women that were just didn't care and they were like I'm going to go and live life so Judith first of all thank you so much for joining me from France how lovely it is it is it's it's hot but it's beautiful and um yeah, I'm feeling very lucky to be here while you swelter in London at the moment. I know, it's a little bit hot, can't lie. Um, but, you know, I know you wrote Flappers a long time ago, but, um, you know, it was such an important book, I feel. So what was your inspiration, first of all, for writing it? Why did you feel you wanted to do it? It's kind of a long explanation, if you don't mind. I mean, I had my first biography was of a Russian ballerina called Lydia Lopakova, uh, who ended up married to the great economist John Maynard Keynes. And her life was this extraordinary 20th century life. I mean, she began in imperial Russia in St. Petersburg and travelled throughout the world as a dancer, ended up in London. So my sense of sort of life, of individual lives being bound up with historical events was was really charged by that book. And you know, her her particular life in the 20s was one of extraordinary momentum and change. So that got me interested in that period between the First World War and then the economic crash of the late 20s as a period, you know, gen when the modern world really began to evolve and with it all those extraordinary opportunities for women. The other thing, because books always beget books, and having done a biography of just one woman, I became interested in the fact that a lot of what you know about a person is, all, is also connected to the lives of others lived around them, and that actually by then moving on to a portrait of six women, the kind of links and the connections between them 
seem to me just as interesting in a way as the details of one individual life. You know, that when, when we are part of a generation, you share the same aspirations, many of the same aspirations, the same frustrations, the same story of events is driving you. So, so as a writer, I, it seemed a very interesting way of coming at biography. Uh, and as a woman, obviously, I was, I was really interested in keeping my focus on, on women themselves, on, on the particular frills and frustrations and richness, etc., of, of being a woman. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it sort of gradually emerged as, as the subject I was next interested in. And it's interesting, having decided, yes, I would do the 20s, I would look at what a period of, of liberation and opening up. And also, we must talk about real challenges and, and um, unsettling currents for women. You know, it was not easy to be liberated in the 1920s. Having decided that, I, I wasn't entirely sure who my women would be. So I, I did a sort of experiment. I had, I had lots of women I was interested in, including those six, the main six. But I looked at what a group of them were doing in 1925, in the middle of the 20s. And I wanted to see who was traveling, because that was the other uh, great theme of the book, was that the 20s was a theme, was a period when the world opened up, you know, when you weren't when women weren't just confined to their roles as mothers and wives and housekeepers, but they were actually breaking out of the kitchen into the, into the wider world. And these six women who I chose all happened to be on the move in 1925. And when I realized that their lives were crisscrossing in lots of interesting ways, that's how I settled on those six. Incredible. And honestly, I mean, it, it must have been a quite hard, like you were saying, to choose because there were so many incredible women at that time doing wonderful things, wasn't there? Um, and I think that's such a, a, a vitally important thing you were saying because they are still trailblazers now. They were the first of their kind to do these things, weren't they? To travel, to to challenge the status quo and like you rightly said you know things were tough then it wasn't easy it's not like they were just going out and having a great time which of course they were but they faced challenges on a daily basis and not fitting into the stereotype um and did that really resonate with you when you started doing your research yes because i was very aware that for most of these women there were no role models and for a woman like Josephine Baker, who obviously was, who made the biggest journey, if you like, of all of them, coming from, you know, a slum in St. Louis, rising to become, you know, the toast of Paris, the, the ebony goddess of, of the musical stage. You know, she, she, you know, so she traveled from extreme poverty to riches. She, she broke into the mainstream entertainment business at a time when black artists and particularly black women were you know hugely uh, abused sexually abused physically abused socially abused you know it was it, even when at the height of her fame when josephine baker went back to new york she was required to use the servant's entrance when she went into a hotel she couldn't go into uh, the plaza or wherever it was with her kind of white backers and obviously although we've progressed in Western society, beyond that kind of overt racism that Josephine Baker suffered. You know, it's still very difficult for many black women, most black women breaking into 
not just the world of entertainment, but any prominent position where they're constantly having to check themselves. You know, Josephine Baker, although she profited by being this exotic black dancer, one of the first of her kind, she burned her scalp almost every night with the with the lotion she put on her hair to straighten it. She tried to bleach her skin with lemon juice. Uh, she was very, treading a very fine line between being loved for her skin color, um, you know, being used in advertisements, but also being patronized for it. Black women today, they still deal with that stuff. And equally, Nancy Cunard, who I think out of all of them was the most sexually liberated, um, although we have to point out that her, her promiscuity, uh, which it was considered then, was part of her very damaged nature. I mean, it, she came out of a generation where most of the young men she knew had been killed or brutally maimed in the First World War, and there was a sense of, you know, hopelessness and loneliness driving her to seek love where she could find it or to seek physical comfort wherever she could find it, as well as a genuine desire to experiment with her body. And, you know, she was very interesting. She would always go on about how she had the right to explore her desires, her body, as much as any man. And yet it's very hard to know how much pleasure she took from it. There was, there was a kind of desperate urge a sort of void in her in a way that was pushing her forward but you know however you analyze Nancy on her own terms there's no question that her behavior and her degree of social notoriety that you know was punitive and 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 again you know although we might like to think our sexual mores are much looser you know society still punishes women for stepping out of line um if they do it in ways that aren't easily packaged. You know, we, we quite like the sexy woman in as far as she's entertainment for us or in as far as she doesn't threaten the status quo, but if there's something more subversive about her, you know, it's it's still it still niggles. I think I think those battles are still being fought. And even if they're not the same battles, identically the same battles, I mean uh, Diana Cooper who was born the, the daughter of a duke and who uh, totally offended her family and the stuffier elements of the British aristocracy by going on to the stage. You know, I mean, that's a kind of laughable uh, predicament to us now. I mean, an awful lot of our lovers come from very wealthy backgrounds. And, you know, there's th that, that sort of social, rigid social hierarchy, that has... Thank God, you know, that's, we've moved on from that. But still, the impulse Diana had to break free of what was expected of her, you know, women in all sorts of walks of life are still dealing with that. Um, you know, it's just that the walks of life are not the same as Diana Cooper's, if you tell me. Yeah, and, and with Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, the great celebrity flapper, whose own writing aspirations were very much overshadowed by her husband, Scott Fitzgerald, and whose life, in a way, although it took off from her initial, the initial celebrity she'd earned by being on the arm of Scott Fitzgerald, by being the muse for so many of his best-selling books, 
you know, that celebrity that launched her also limited and in a way deformed her. And again, we see that happening today, you know, in an era of celebrity, you know, celebrities are flung out by the media and then they're chewed up again so fast. And I think, I think still that affects women more profoundly than it does men. I totally agree. And thank you so much for all that information and, and thought. I think as women, it, it's the same issues, isn't it? But just packaged differently at the moment. You know, if you're too old, if you're Madonna on Instagram wearing your pants, you get berated because you're not fitting into that older woman box. If you have an opinion that maybe isn't conformed to the status quo, you know, you get you get told to shut up. So there are still those issues. And I think, I mean, you'd let me know what you think, but I think that's why the 20s and the women that were involved in it still resonate so massively today because it is the same problems it's the same the same issues the same need and the same desires but just packaged in a different way do do you think the same yes i do and i also i mean what also resonated with me hugely when i was writing the book was that this explosion of freedom was so brief i mean i mean in a sense that i mean it partly history overtook that the 30s there was a dreadful unemployment the rise of fascism second world war there were all sorts of understandable reasons why a world that seemed in the 20s to be dominated by individual self-expression, individual fulfillment, why that world should become closed in by external forces. But, you know, the 50s, when women were so brutally packed back into the kitchen after they'd done all that sterling work in the Second World War, the period of conservatism really didn't start to open up until the late 60s, early 70s. That makes us realize how fragile still women's rights are, how easily a conservative culture can push women back into their box. And God knows what we're seeing in America in particular is, you know, just horrific how quickly a minority of conservative, judgmental men can say to women, you don't have freedom, you don't have autonomy, you don't have rights to your own body and your own choices. So, you know, the the 20s were a huge inspiration, but they're also, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a word of warning to us all that we must... We must keep fighting for what we what we've won. Absolutely, and it's so interesting what you were saying. It's almost like a roller coaster, isn't it? With the twenties and the sixties were the peak of liberation and women's freedom, but oh my goodness, how dare we get back in our box? And we'll make sure that you do. You know, the the minute that you try and and be liberated and try and you know speak for yourself and have that autonomy, they will be like you say, some conservative white old men that will try and put us back in our box with every power that they've got. And like you say. What happening in the, what's happening in America is just horrific. But then we had the guy in the House of Commons echoing their thoughts, you know. So it's not too far away from us in the UK either, which is completely terrifying. But what I hope is that, you know, we, we would have the likes of, if they were around today, the Dianas, the Nancys, the Josephines, who would be with their placards right at the front with all of us saying this isn't happening, this is not on. Freedom for women is, is everything. And I, I do genuinely believe that that women together is such a force of nature. It is just so fantastic, the book you've written. And, you know, obviously you're doing so much more. Can you tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment, what's in the pipeline? As I said, books do beget books. And after uh, 
I'd been writing flappers. I was very interested in uh, one character who appeared in Diana Cooper's early life, which was this mad Italian Marchesa, it, uh, Luisa Casati, who basically ran through an entire fortune trying to turn herself into a living work of art and who completely enchanted Diana and overwhelmed her when Diana first went to one of the extraordinary parties that she held in Venice. Uh, and I was very interested in this woman who actually seemed not only the Lady Gaga of the early 20th century, but actually outdid Lady Gaga in a million ways. I mean, there's a wonderful story of how she went to a cubist ball dressed as... No, sorry, she went to a fancy dress party, that's right, in Paris, dressed as an early cubist painting by Picasso, which was basically this huge dress made out of wires and electric light bulbs which was so huge and ungainly that when she tried to squeeze her way through the doorway to the ballroom, <laughs> the thing collapsed and she was electrocuted. <laughs> I mean, not badly, she just got a shock, you know, and was sort of thrown backwards. Uh, and, you know, she, she would turn up at parties with a live boa constrictor wrapped around her neck, uh, half naked. She, um, at one point, she went to the Paris Opera with um, ram's horns on her head and chicken blood dripped, dripping down her neck. I mean, she was extraordinary. She was extraordinary. Uh, but I discovered that this extraordinary palazzo where Louisa lived uh, had consecutively been inhabited by two other women. Uh, the second was uh, an, an English woman named Doris Castle Ross, who, like Nancy Cunard, was extremely sexual woman, very free, very brave, very bold in exploring her own desires and extremely good at sex. I mean, she had no, notoriously had affairs with both Winston Churchill, uh, who always denied that, and Cecil Beaton, who was gay but was trying very hard not to be at that time and had hoped that Doris, with her amazing <laughs> skills, would <laughs> initiate him into the joys of sleeping with women. And then, finally, it was bought by Peggy Guggenheim, the great American art collector, who also led a very, um, by society's terms, very free and... Uh, adventurous life. And what really, what I loved about writing this book, uh, in part, was not only the adventures of these women, but also the palazzo where they stayed in Venice, which is now the Guggenheim Museum in Venice, was originally commissioned by a very patrician Venetian family who had conceived the idea of this palazzo as the grandest, the largest on the whole stretch of the Grand Canal. But because their money ran out, they also ran out of male heirs. Uh, the building was never completed and it sort of began to fall into ruin and was called the Unfinished Palazzo, which is the title of my book. And it was these three women, notorious in their individual ways, who actually recovered the chateau, the palazzo, sorry, from its kind of desperate state and made it a kind of destination point in Venice. Uh, so that was my sort of second book about rather uh, buccaneering, uh, potentially decadent women. 
And so then I sort of got serious. And the book I wrote after that was about six women journalists who reported from the front lines of the Second World War. And uh, not only about those the amazing stories that got them to be led them to be journalists and about everything that they encountered uh, and braved in their work, but also about the real battles they had to fight against their male editors and against a very dinosaur military bureaucracy to win the, the right to fight at the front because it, in the Second World War, you know, even though women were being bombed in cities around Europe and the Far East, you know, women were it was still considered by the men in power that women were the weaker sex, that, um, you know, the blood and danger and noise of battlefield was, was too much for them. And there was also, interestingly, a real fear that um, a lone woman journalist parachuted into a battalion of male soldiers would immediately spread sexual unrest. <laughs> there, would be, there would be riots to contain. And the real fear, interestingly, was... Um, what the English called the convenience question and the Americans called the latrine business, which was how could you decently have men and women peeing, shitting in close proximity? You know, wouldn't women need somehow, you know, special arrangements? And this whole idea that, you know, a woman who was brave enough to force her way to the middle of a battle zone would somehow be too chicken to kind of, you squeamish to duck behind a bush, you know. I mean, so that was very interesting to me. And now the book I'm writing about is about uh, two artists, Gus, Augustus and Gwen John, who were brother and sister, both starting their careers at the beginning of the 20th century. And I was very interested both in exploring their relationship as brother and sister, but also looking at how the fact that their careers developed in very, very different ways. His, he was immediately, almost immediately, hugely famous, hugely notorious, whereas she largely chose to work much more quietly in the shadows. Um, I, I, I was interested in looking at how far the differences between their careers related to who they were as people and artists, but also in terms of the opportunities that were open to them uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, him as a man, her as a woman. I mean, they were both in their own ways, I would say, prefiguring the 1920s. They were both thought of themselves as breaking out of Victorian convention. But for him, it was all very public, very flamboyant. Um, I mean, and, and interestingly, he was highly promiscuous, so much so that when he used to walk up and down King's Road, he allegedly used to pat the head of any passing child on the assumption it might be one of his. But, you know, he was fated for that, whereas, you know, Nancy Cunard, a, a generation later, I mean, actually, John and uh, Augustus John and Nancy Cunard knew each other very well, but, you know, it was, it was interesting how much he was fated for, for his advocation of free love, and she was condemned for it. Um, I like with each of my books to be learning, really, uh, discovering new areas that, of history and of human endeavor, really. But but women seems it, it's still it's 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 the focus always. 
because, you know, I mean, a lot of the women I write about, it's not that they're unknown, but I think a lot of their stories, weaving their stories into a larger fabric of history, that seems to me still where there's a lot of work to be done, you know, that, that women aren't just these isolated individuals who might somehow have done something extraordinary, but they are also part of a sort of larger, we like to think a larger kind of march, monstrous regiment of women marching towards their future. Those are my subjects, I think. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what a, what a sentence to end on. I think that's incredible. And, you know, just a huge thank you, Judith, for telling these stories and unearthing these amazing women. Because like you say, we've all got our preconceptions about the Zelda Fitzgerald, the Josephine Bakers, but actually when you delve into their stories, there's mixed with so much tragedies, tragedy, so much, you know, stereotypes, so much challenge that they had to face on a daily basis. And I'm so excited about your new book, my goodness. And isn't it the same in this day? You know, a man can go and do whatever he likes. If a woman's promiscuous, oh my goodness, you know, the names the names follow her, don't they? So it's it's nothing's much changed, very sadly. Very sadly. But honestly, Judith, thank you so, so much for joining me. I could talk to you all day. It's so fascinating. When is the new book out, please? And how can people follow you? It's not out, it's not out for another couple of years. Um, I'm still just in the middle of it. And I should have a website, but I don't. But I'm on Twitter and uh, Instagram in a vague way, <laughs> under my name, under Judith McCrell. Fabulous. And thank you so much. I love the sound of your Hotsy Totsy Club. I think it's such a great name. It, it, it summons up a world of trouble. Thank you so much. Well, whenever you're in the UK, Judith, come. I will. I will. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Judith. That was fantastic. Lovely to meet you. And you. Hello, so I am really happy to be joined by one of our lovely Hotsy Totsiers, Kirsten Miller. Now, I didn't know Kirsten before you joined Hotsy Totsy, and you came along, I remember, to our Bloomsbury Walk, and you were wonderful, and you've been to a couple of Hotsy Totsies since then, and it's been so lovely getting to know you. And you run your own business, Core Green, which is business support for small and medium businesses. So basically... We need a curse in our lives, I think most of us. Um, how are you? How are things? I'm good, thank you. I'm really enjoying being part of Hotsy Totsy. Really enjoying the things that Hotsy Totsy put on, getting out of my comfort zone. And I agree, everybody does need a me in their life. <laughs> well, thank you for your kind words about Hotsy Totsy. Sometimes when, when I'm planning things, I think, ooh, is it a little bit too much? But you are embracing it, which I massively appreciate. Um, so... Tell me a bit about you and Core Green. Is this something you've always wanted to do? Have you, have you just got that natural knack that people have? It's bizarre. I think right from when I left school, I always knew I wanted to work for myself. Towards the end of the 80s, uh, my dad and I were going to set up on our own. He's an electrical engineer. Anyway, we didn't because the recession hit. And then after that, you know, I, I worked on and off bringing up a young family. And then when I went back to work, I definitely didn't want a full-time job. So I took on a lot of temp roles or um, contracting roles. And then about six years ago, I was just like, I just can't do this anymore. And I, it got me starting to think, like, how can I work with small businesses? So literally five years ago, I just handed in my notice. Uh, well, I didn't actually. I went part-time for six months. Then I handed in my notice and I absolutely love what I do. I love the businesses I work with, 
the, the variety of clients. Um, so, I, yeah, I do think it was something I was destined to do. Mm. I think it's it's a common thing, especially with women, isn't it? This this need and desire for, for very many reasons to work for themselves. And it's so brilliant just having that autonomy, isn't it? And to be able to do what you like. So, you know, business support, it can be a very wide, generic thing. Can you give us a bit of an idea about what you and, and Core Green offer? Yeah, so at Core Green, we do work with a really vast variety of businesses. So in the past, I've worked with um, a couple of uh, micro pubs and then, um, and now my sort of core, the core business has kind of moved a bit more towards business side of things. So I work with some big, some medium sized charities, um, a big schools trust in South East London. I tend to lean a lot more towards the creatives as well. Um, so I'm where I live in Medway in Kent. I'm part of a creative Medway um, movement, shall I say? Um, and then I work in a co-working space, so I work with some techie companies as well. Um, but I, but like, so the core in Core Green is a bit like every business has a core element to it, and that's what I provide, or Core Green provides. So we, you know, we don't really look after diaries or filing. Um, but we do we do bookkeeping. Um, we work on projects, whether that's so for someone, their mini project could literally be let's find out about how they can introduce electronic payment in their pay in their work environment, or it could be something much bigger, uh, for instance, putting on an event for two hundred people um and being the, the management between those two, the business and and the event. So we do absolutely, you know, absolutely anything. And I'm a firm believer that if I think I can do it, I can do it. Absolutely. That's very much the hotsy totsy ethos. And it must be really interesting because I imagine no two days are the same. It must be so varied in what you are asked to do and, and the scale of stuff. It must be really interesting, actually. It is really varied. And you're right, you never know what you're asked to do. So for instance, this morning, uh, a client has sent me an voice note of a meeting they had yesterday that they not they want me to type up but they don't want me to type it up they want me to source some voice recording uh downloadable something that will transfer their speak into te into text and then I'll tidy it up so I was not expecting that and uh so a little bit of research a little bit of learning as well as typing up what they want for me it's so interesting isn't it how it's evolving like you know because even a year ago someone would have been like can you just type this up for me on word or whatever and now it's like no can you actually find some tech to translate it, it it's it's gone mad hasn't it it's, it's crazy yeah i think it's good i know a downside of covid obviously was all the bad things that happened but a good thing that's come out of it is people are working in a much slicker virtual way definitely and it's like all the shall we say older generation have finally realized that things can be done in that capacity, can't they? You know, it's the proof was in the pudding in that way. So talk to me a bit about outside of work, you know, tell us a bit about you, what, what you like doing, what you're into. Yeah, so outside of work, I, um, I've got a camper van, which I love. I can work from there. I can work from pretty much anywhere. Um, and I really, really, really enjoy that. It took me a couple of years to find the right van for me. Um, so I enjoy that. I really enjoy music. Um, appreciate most music, um, but mostly it's more rock music. Um, enjoy going to festivals. So COVID was a bit of a struggle without going to any festivals. Um, 
during COVID, I um, adopted two cats, which was really lovely. I've wanted cats for a long time. And um, something happened at home. Uh, basically, um, I could ask for whatever I wanted. And uh, it was, yes, you can have whatever you want. So, yeah, I got the two cats during that time. Um, yeah, what else about me? Oh, goodness. I got married last year. My daughter got married last year. Um, and I live in a... I live in Rochester in Kent. It's quite it's quite a small town, but I live in the centre, and there is absolutely everything on the doorstep: pubs, restaurants, train station, main roads. Really love where I live. You sound very happy, and what a lovely thing! And congratulations on the wedding, the cats, and the camper van. Not too <laughs> bad, you. is it? No. Nope. Amazing. So camper van, I am intrigued because. This is something I would love to do in my head. And my friend's got a camper van and they go off. Um, how is the idea versus the reality? Oh, if you've been camping, the reality with a camper van is you haven't got as much space as a tent. However, you arrive and 10 minutes later, you're ready to go. You're not still getting stuff out of the car 45 minutes to an hour later on. Um, you can pack up and go. You you can take more of your own stuff with you. You don't have to unload when you get home. Um, and it's just amazing. The community, the camper van community, everybody wants to, sh probably a bit like the tent community, everybody wants to show off what they've got and what they've done and what how they've changed it around. Um, so, yeah, having the camper van is everything that I thought it would be. I could live in it, actually. Really? That's so, because the worst bit, because I'm a bit of a festival goer as well, and the worst bit of a festival, in my opinion, is the lugging all your shit from wherever you've landed to wherever you're going to pitch your tent. It's soul-destroying, isn't it? And actually, on the way back's the worst, when you're literally broken after being in a tent for however many days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I get you. So having, I'd be very smug with a camper van, I feel. But you'd be in your own field with your camper van people, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. At a festival, the campervan site is usually closer to the arena as well. But we take our cats with us, um, and we did try. We did try them on leads, but every time we put the harness on them, it was like they were having a fit, and they just would not cope. So we were like, "Well, we either have to take them with us and chance it, or rely on friends and neighbours." So we took them with us, um, let them out the front door, and they just hung around and now whenever we go to a new place we literally arrive open the door they have a bit of a sniff and off they go interesting isn't that brilliant because in in my head cats would just do one wouldn't they yeah. see you later and get lost yeah. Yeah. and then you spend your whole holiday looking for the bloody cat so that's amazing so do you get any funny looks that you let your cats out of a camper van when you get somewhere yeah, sometimes people, are, they think it's the campsite cat or they're like trying to get our attention because our cats have got out and we didn't know they've got out. So, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a conversation starter. And uh, we get funny looks if we're at the supermarket, for instance, and we need to get in and out of the van really quickly. People are like, the odd Was that a cat? Over there. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what, though? Good for you, I say. And, like, the cats must be having a blooming ball. They're having a little, you know, oh, they love little it. trip everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Those cats are going to be quite famous, I imagine, in the camper van community, Possibly. aren't they? What, what are their names? Got a tortoise shell called Shelly and then a black one called Willow. Cute. So Shelly and Willow might be the talk of the camper van town. You know, they might be like the Larry of the, uh, you know, the camper van yeah. world. You never, you never, never know. So tell us a bit about what your 
working on at the moment? What you're wanting to do? Are you wanting more clients? Are you, you know, what, how are you at the minute? Well, we're growing. I'm always after new clients. Uh, what sometimes happens is the small business grows a bit bigger and they no longer have a need for me because they take their own staff member on, which is great for them. It's good for their growth. And, you know, it's much better value for them if if they need a lot more outsourcing time. Um, so, yeah, never really turn work down. Um, that's really good. Um, what am I working on? So much stuff. Um, I'm putting an event on later this year for 200 people for funny women. Um, so that would be great. Uh, I'm working on a book launch with a client. One client, they're in the process of setting up a CIC, so I'm helping them out with all of that, getting their bank account open, making sure they're all legal and fitting in all the right. board. Yeah. So it all sounds really creative and really interesting, isn't it? It's wonderful what you're doing. And, you know, congratulations. I I really admire women that have just gone for it and, and done what they wanted to do because... Life's for living, isn't it? You Absolutely. I mean? Definitely. But, you know, and if you would like to meet Kirsten or work with Kirsten, how can people get get you? <laughs> they, can, they can find me on LinkedIn under Kirsten Miller or under Core Green. Um, people can phone me directly. Uh, they can contact me on Facebook or they can look at our website, coregreen.co.uk, or they can email me, Kirsten, at coregreen.co.uk. Amazing. Or they could even come to a Hotsy Totsy. And meet you in person. Coming to a hotsy totsy would be amazing. Exactly. Be nice, wouldn't it? But anyway, um, I just want to thank you so much for your support. And honestly, I know it's um it's um nerve-wracking walking into a new group when you don't know anybody. So, you know, hats off to you. And it's been so wonderful getting to know you over the last few months. And thank you for all your support. And you know, congratulations on you're living your best life, it sounds like. It sounds incredible. You know, yeah. amazing. <laughs> Good for you, as as you should be. You know, life's for living. And we only have this, we only come this way once, don't we? Absolutely. So thank you for joining me, my love. And have a really good rest of the day, won't you? Take care. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotsy Totsy podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Hotsy Totsy is a female-only membership club for women who are walking their own walk and are spirited, fun and fabulous to come together and enjoy a range of bespoke and exclusive events. Please do give us a follow on Instagram at hotsy underscore totsyers and find out more on the Hotsy Totsy website, which is hotsy-totsy.co.uk. Thank you.